Well, let me encourage you to be pulling out out of your bulletins. Uh, there's, a, there's a sheet in here on, on the message. It's, it's notes for the message this morning. I want to encourage you to grab that. Also, I want to encourage you to grab this uh, little sheet that says small group questions. Would you do that? Because there's a mistake on it. And uh, really, it's the first mistake I ever made. You know what I mean? So uh, at least the first mistake I made uh, Thursday when, I, when, this was, when this was typed out. So it's on question number two, and it says, read James 3.1. That should say read James 3.13, not 3.1, 3.13. So here's the question. Do you forgive me for the mistake? Oh, thank you very much. Because if you didn't, then God's not going to forgive you. That's what the Bible says. So good for, good for you. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you're at that point. So we're in James 3 today. And uh, um, th- th- we're, ki- we're kind of in a segue here, a, a segue in the book of James. Kind of a, a parenthesis, kind of a, a, a timeout. As we move to the end of chapter 3, James is pausing. And the, and the purpose here is to, is to help us take account. James' letter is all about practical Christian living. And here in the very middle of the letter, he's, he's calling a timeout. He's stopping to announce the people who are wise are taking note. These six short verses at the end of chapter 3 are all about wisdom, living out wisdom. And what, what James is doing is really simply putting a choice in front of us. The question is, what kind of life do you want to live? And what kind of eternity do you want to have? And James says that the life you really want will force you to choose the path that you're going to walk. So be wise in how you live. Be wise in how you choose. That said... James puts two things in front of us, and I just want to jump right into them this morning because there's a lot to say here. And the the first is this. Please write it down. Wisdom. And what what I want to do is begin with a definition. It's right where James starts. Now, I I don't know about you, but but I love to watch the game show Jeopardy. It's it's an amazing thing to me to watch these these people, these people with these huge brains come into a room where they compete with one another. And it's not just 50, 60, 70-year-olds with these big brains. Lots of times it's, it's 20 and 30-year-olds. They even have a team competition, a team championship, a teen championship. I, I watched, and I've got to tell you, I'm stunned at not only what these people know, I'm stunned with how fast they can just pull it to the very edge of their brain and get it out. I mean, their recall is absolutely amazing. It's, it's just almost like instantaneous. I mean, there are, there are questions on Jeopardy that I know, but to be able to think of it, I mean, you hear a few words in a question and you already know the answer. I mean, that, that, that is amazing. Now, over the many decades that the show has been on television, some of the champions have risen to the top. People like Ken Jennings, there's a picture of this guy who's called the GOAT, the greatest of all time Jeopardy players. Now, he's not the all-time money winner on the show. Jennings is number two. He won a whopping $3,370,000 playing Jeopardy. A guy by the name of Brad Rudder is the all-time winner. He won $4.75 million. Most of Rudder's wins, though, came, he, was, he, he won in a day where you can only be on the show for so long, and then they, and then they, they you, you won X amount of shows, X amount of games, and then, then you, were, you were out they, they brought in a whole new crew. They kept bringing Rudder back for these Tournament of Champions and Tournament of Champions and the Tournament of the Champions of Champions, and that's where Rudder won most of his money. But, but while Jennings isn't the all-time winner, he is the number 
two winner of all-time money on the show. He did win the most games in Jeopardy. This guy, Ken Jennings, won 74 games in a row. I mean, 15 weeks at five days a week, 15, that's, that's, he, he went 14 weeks and four days and never got beat. And watching Ken Jennings play, I, I'm just telling you, is, is an amazing thing. He, he would dominate his competitor. Sometimes he answered so many questions, it was like he was the only one playing the game. It's like the other two people had just disappeared. They didn't exist. Now, to be a Jeopardy champion, you need to know a lot of stuff. You need to know about science, geography, literature, language, history, philosophy, music, sports, general, just general trivia knowledge. But just because you have a lot of knowledge stored up in your head doesn't make you wise. In fact, it hardly makes you wise. Some of the biggest fools in the world are the people with the biggest brains. So it leads us to needing to come to a definition of wisdom. What is wisdom? And, and I, I want you to jot a couple things down that James is going to put in front of us. First, biblical wisdom is very different from worldly wisdom. God's not interested in how many facts you know. What, what God really is concerned about is how you choose to live your life. It's what you do with what you know. James writes in, in the beginning of this section, who is the wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And no, no, Make sure you notice the words here. Live a good life. Show it. Deeds done in humility. We're talking action here. Follow the path of wisdom is laid out in the Word of God. For, for God, wisdom is a practical thing. It's centered not in what you know. It's centered in how you live. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room to be a very wise person. You simply have to be a person who's earnest and practically taking the Word of God and applying it to how you live your daily life. People, people who are wise are people who acknowledge that there is a God. There is a God. Would you agree with that, church? Yes? Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The wise people acknowledge that there's a God, and then they orient their lives around the will and the commands of God. In other words, they are obedient to God. When Solomon became the king of Israel, a lot was laid on this young man's shoulders. You just think about it. It would be one thing to have a kingdom of people to be responsible for. I mean, to be the king is just, is just a weight of responsibility that is huge. But Solomon was given the, the task of, of following in the footsteps of the man who was considered to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. It was his father, David. Solomon's father became the standard of what God looks for in a leader, a man after God's own heart, a heart to live, a heart to follow after the will and the purpose of God. And more, a man who did it, a king who did it. 
It's been said that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. When you're king, it's like you're a god. You've got people all around you waiting on you. I mean, you, you hardly can get a word out of your mouth, and people are jumping to attention to do exactly what you want. Not David. Oh, oh he had a seasons of trouble. And as you read through First and Second Samuel, we, we, we know that this is true. Dave, Dave, David had his foibles. In fact, he had some huge foibles, but his heart was always centered on God. And it always brought his actions right back into place. I mean, even when David got off track, he was quick to repent, to turn, to seek forgiveness, and to come back to God. David lived not to please himself, not to get what he wanted. David's heart was to be pleasing to the will and the purpose of God. And let me tell you, those were, those were huge, huge, huge footsteps for, for Solomon to follow in and try to fill. When Solomon became king. One of his first acts was to go to Gibeon. And when he got to Gibeon, he was there to offer sacrifices to the Lord. You can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 3. And, and while, while Solomon is there during the night, God appears to him and speaks to him. And God offers Solomon an, an unbelievable gift. Here's, here's what he says. Chapter 3, 1 Kings, verse 5. Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, this is the God of everything, the owner of everything, who can speak and bring everything into, into existence. And he's looking to Solomon and say, what do you want? And I'm going I'm to give it to you. This is the proverbial genie in the bottle. I mean, this is the golden ticket. This is, this is the winning lottery ticket. God was ready to do exactly what Solomon asked. And as, as you read this passage, it's not like, he, it's not like Solomon even has to to think for a moment what he, what he wants here. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6, Solomon answered, you, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Solomon goes on, verse 7, Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a child. And I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count, too, too numerous to number. So, verse 9, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Of all the things Solomon could ask for, what, what Solomon says is, I'm young, I need wisdom. I need, I need humility, Lord, help me here to know, to know what to do. I mean, I, the, this, this is a humble spirit crying out to God. Help me to have the wisdom to act. Help me to have the wisdom to know right from wrong. And, it, it, at this point in his life, early, while he's still young, Solomon got it. And as a result, God gave Solomon what he asked for. 1 Kings 3, verse 10 says, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. In other words, Solomon, you are going to have the you are going to be wise beyond wise beyond wise. You will be the sage of all time. And God went further. He gave him so much more. Verse 13 says, Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for. 
I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you honor so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. But understand, friends, there's a caveat here, and that's verse 14. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. All this is going to be great, Solomon, and the kingdom is going to continue. And all the blessings that flowed into David and to Israel are going to flow into you and through you and to your sons and your sons and your sons. But here's the deal. You must walk with me. Wisdom declares that I am God and you will follow me. I'm just telling you, Solomon was up for the task. His wisdom was immediately put to the test at the end of chapter 3 in 1 Kings. Two women come in. They, one, one, they both had babies. They, they, one rolled over on her baby during the night. The baby suffocated and died. She went and grabbed the baby from the other woman, brought it to her. These women are now coming before the king saying, she's got my baby. No, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. No, it's my And they're looking to the king to make a decision. Solomon says, pull out a sword. Put the baby down. The, he pulls out the sword and... and and he's getting ready. To, he just says, we'll give each of you half. And he's getting ready to, to strike the baby. And one woman says, no, 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 don't do that. And Solomon says, she's the mother. Give her the baby. I mean, the, the real mother would care about what happened to her child. I mean, wisdom. I mean, it's, 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 it's flying out of the palace from everybody. This guy is unbelievable. And not, not only this, but now Solomon is taking on the task of building the temple of God. From, from, this, from this point back all the way to Mount Sinai, hundreds of years back, the children of Israel have been worshiping God in a tent, in the tabernacle. But now Solomon is charged, not David, Solomon, with building the tabernacle of God. And as Solomon walked with God, success and blessing were poured into the nation of Israel. But along the way, something, something flipped. Solomon's life turned. He moved from wisely following God to a secular approach. He began with women, lots of women, a thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, concubines, sexual liaisons. He had a, he had a thousand women in his harem, and, and that started forming all these alliances with all these kings around. And pretty soon all of, these, all of these women from all these other nations were bringing their gods into Israel. And now Solomon, to keep peace in the house, is, is now building high places and temples for all these false gods. He's built the temple for the true God, and now he's building high places and temples for all these false gods. And it moved to following a carnal earthly wisdom, money, fame, indulgence. Me, 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 me. And Solomon's life went straight into the pit. All you need to do is, is go to the Old Testament and read the book of Ecclesiastes, 12 short chapters. And Solomon is sitting down kind of, kind of as he's moving from middle age to old age, and he's, he's taking account of where he is. And if you just read this book, it's just he's talking about how meaningless everything is. I poured myself into all of this stuff, and where has it led me? It's, it's, it's brought me nothing but trouble. The man who started out so well got on a path that led him a zillion miles in the complete opposite direction from God. And here's the deal. Solomon's own life allowed him to compare the paths of life. My life when I followed God, my life 
when I didn't follow God. Solomon came to a point where he's absolutely miserable, and it led to a point of repentance. As he's remembering where he was and where he was now, it it leads him to a point to say, I don't like this. I want to get back to where I was. And so he's turning, repenting, turning back to God. And in hindsight now, towards the end of his life, this very wise king writes these words at the very end of Ecclesiastes, where he's just talking about how everything's meaningful. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. What's the wise thing to do? How's the wise way to live? By following God's path. Know him, do it. Now, it's at this point, Solomon's also determining that he needs to pour into his son. And that brought us the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of short, pithy statements. It's written from a father, Solomon, to his son. And Solomon, as you read through the book of Proverbs, just just hear a father pleading with his son to follow the path of, of wisdom. Don't end up in the pit I ended up in, son. Make sure that you're over here. Follow this path. It is the wise thing to do. Solomon had first hand knowledge of what happens when you get off of God's path. He was well familiar with the pain and the trouble that comes when you walk away from God. Not wise. So Solomon pleads with his son to carefully guard his path. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse, starting right with verse 1. Here's what Solomon says. Listen, my son, to a, to a father's Ah, listen, my son, to a father's instruction. Pay attention. Gain understanding. I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and an only child of my mother, he, my dad, David, taught me and said, lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commandments, and you will live. Look at at verse 5. Solomon says, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words. Do not swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom. She will protect you. Love her. She will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her. She will exalt you. Embrace her. She will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. Solomon says, son, you've got to be careful here. The day is coming when you're going to be king. And when that happens, you're going to to be given every opportunity to have every indulgence that I had. And I allowed that and I enabled it to take me down the wrong path. Solomon said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't get on that path. Listen listen to this. Get wisdom. And And then Solomon writes these words. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Three times in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 33. These words appear. That the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Now, wisdom is knowing God and knowing His Word and living out the commands, obedience. This, This fear that Solomon's talking here is not like this shirking in the presence of. It's 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 a reverence. It's an understanding that really God is out for your good. 
And what God wants to do is bring blessing into your life. And so what I'm going to do is listen to what he would have to say. I'm going to reverence God. I'm going to, the beginning of being wise is holding him in esteem and listening to him. And that's exactly where James is taking us. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who's the wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, listen, friends. Man defines wisdom right here. Head. Head. God defines wisdom right here. Do. We've got to get this into our minds. Wisdom is not something you spout. What good are a bunch of pithy statements that you impress people with? No, wisdom is practical. Wisdom is what, how you choose to live, what you choose to do with what you know to be true. The, the wise people among us are the people who actually live out their faith. And through this short five-chapter letter, James gives us sage advice about living. How to live lives that are well-pleasing to God. How to live a life that is blessed. And blessing comes when you put your faith into practice. And James is pausing here. He's talked about temptations and trials. And, and Joshua talked about chapter 2 where he's talking about favoritism. And, and, and chapter 1, favoritism. And then, and, then, and then Brad Crane was talking about how... how how easy it is to, to get faith and works all messed up. Again, it's, it's living, doing, living, doing, living, doing. Last week we talked about the tongue and how your tongue and what comes out of your mouth is important because it really reveals what's down inside. And now James is pausing and he's saying, do you all get this? I'm, I'm talking about living practically on a daily basis and here's what I'm going to say to you. You need to get wisdom. I'm pausing right here in the middle of my letter to you to make sure that you, that you hear this truth. That God is concerned with what you do and how you live your life out. And with that definition of wisdom laid out, James then takes a very practical, practical step. It leads us to the second thought here. And James just really says, what, you, what I'm calling you to do now is evaluate. Evaluate your life. Make sure you check the fruit. The fruit in your life will determine, and it will make a statement, a loud statement, about the path that you're following. Now, fruit checking is a biblical concept. God's, God is not concerned with what you say as much as he's concerned with how you live. Je Jesus made that abundantly clear in his ministry. His teaching was always being focused on being the person God called you to be. Here's where you are. Here's, here's where you need to shift Here's where you need to shift your thinking. Now, here's what you need to do. Jesus didn't teach us so we would stuff trivial facts into our heads so we could spout them and, and impress people. No, what, what he was doing is talking about living every day. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, the people who do what I say is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And then Jesus talked about the antithesis of this, verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man 
who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the same weather conditions, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. One stands, one falls. Why? Wise, foolish. Jesus teaches us to be fruit inspectors. Luke chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, the passages listed in your, in your notes. I, I hope you go home this afternoon and, and read them. Jesus tells us to check out the fruit of our lives. The fruit, uh, my, my life, the fruit that your life is producing is a clear indicator of, of the path you're on and where your life is headed. And James is telling us the exact same thing. The fruit of your life will clearly tell you the path you are walking. James is just very practically laying it all out for us. And he does it in a way that you just can't miss. James draws a comparison. And first he talks about worldly wisdom. Here's what, here's what James says. Worldly wisdom will lead to a life filled with pain. When, when you follow the path of this world, it always leads to destruction. Not, not, just, not just destruction in this life. James would tell you it leads to destruction for eternity as well. And that's always painful. And, and, I, and I probably don't have to spend a lot of time here. Because we, we, we all know it's true. When I choose to listen to the teaching of, of the world and allow that teaching to direct my path, Nothing good comes. What James does here is encourage us to back up and put some things into perspective. And it's what I want you to see here. James is answering some basic questions. Hear about the wisdom of the world and the pain that it will bring. First, he's, first, first he, he, he poses this question about what drives a worldly mindset? How, how do, what's the base? What's the foundation? Of, of a worldly mindset. James says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James said that wise people live their lives. They do what God calls them to do. And then he lays out the exact opposite of doing what God wants. It's doing what I want. James defines it with two phrases, selfish ambition and bitter envy. Now the bottom line here, friends, is, is that worldly wisdom, it's all, it's all about me. Me first. The word that comes to my mind here is selfie. The selfie generation. We're surrounded by people who are centered in self. It's everywhere. The anthem of today's world is me. What's in it for me? It's all about me. Friend and I were down in Florida for a couple of days, and we were watching a series of videos, and one of the characters had asked a girl out, and he was struggling with some things, and he was working his way through as they're sitting over coffee, and the girl just looks at him and says, you're not worshiping me. It's not all about me. And she gets up and she walks out. The world, the world is teaching you to set yourself up at the center of the world. Your heart, your feelings, your desires, your cravings. Me, 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 me. And with me at the center, I begin my pursuit of life. The selfish ambition. is looking at the stuff of the world and 
having an envy for it, not just an envy, a bitter envy. It drives me to really hate everybody around me who has everything that I want and I don't have. Selfish ambition and bitter envy has caused a ruckus in the world. I want, I want, I want. Give it to me. And don't you ever tell me that what I think or what I feel is wrong. Truth's been thrown out the window. Why? Because I don't like it. I want to do what I want to do, and I have the right to pursue the lifestyle that I choose. And not only do I have that right, it's your responsibility to applaud me, to tell me how wonderful I am. I I could be a zillion miles down a road that you disagree with, but you're not allowed to disagree with me because it's really all about me. And if you don't make me happy, and it goes further. It doesn't matter how my choices impact you. The only thing that matters is me and my happiness and what I feel. So we, we are living today in a world of narcissists. The dictionary defines narcissism as an inordinate fascination with oneself, excessive self-love, vanity. Narcissists care about one thing, me. They only love you for what you can do for me. It's selfish. It's a selfish ambition. And most often it's carnal, which leads to the second distinction that James makes about this worldly wisdom. And that's the fruit, the fruit of a life driven by worldly wisdom. James 3.16 says, For where you have bitter, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. When you set yourself up as the focus of life and run after whatever you feel will make you happy, it results in two things. James says, <laughs> disorder every evil practice. Now, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to encourage you in your daily quiet times this week to pull this verse out, to pull out verse 16 of James chapter 3. Read it. Read it. Pull it out. Read it. And think it through. Talk it through in your small group. The determination to put yourself in the center of the world will have catastrophic effect. Just look around. The selfish ambition and the bitter envy of people has forced our world to flip everything on its head. Today we call good evil and evil good. We glory in the things that we should be ashamed of. We support and applaud the things that should cause us great concern. And then we threaten anyone who would dare to challenge our thinking. In a world that's teaching tolerance and applause, if anybody stands up and disagrees with you, you kill them. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that James is right. When you set your mind and your heart on yourself, when you choose to pursue your personal lust and your cravings, when it's all about you, when you live at the center of the universe, it will lead to disorder and every evil practice. It can't be any other way. And friends, when 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 I'm reading this, really, I just pause right here and say, 
Welcome to our world. And James adds one more thought here that really ought to cause all of us to pause, and that's, that's the origin. The question James is talking about here is where did it come from? Where, where, where did this me generation come from? And the answer is from one place. It came from Satan. James 3.15 says, Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. The wisdom to live like this does not come from God. It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from the enemy of our souls. It comes from Satan. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I want to swing back. I want to I pick it up for a few more moments here. And I want to make sure you get this. I want, to, I want to make sure that you have a couple of passages in your Bible underlined. And, 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 I, and I, want, I want you to see it clearly for what it is. Satan was an angel. And back in those days, his name was Lucifer. Lucifer, say that with me. Lucifer. Come on, say it again. Lucifer. Lucifer means son of the morning. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful name. It, th- this name, Lucifer, has come to mean something completely different to us because we know the evil character that holds that name. But, but when, when this created angel was given this name, Lucifer, it was, it was beautiful. And this, this angel, Lucifer, was one of the archangels. He was one of the, 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 the center angels around the throne of God, the inner circle of God, Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer. The angels were created with a task, a purpose, and their task was to serve God. And serve they did. They served the Creator, their Creator. The Heavenly Father made them and made them with a purpose to serve. And wisdom declares that they should do what they were created to do. But Lucifer had a better idea, and it led him to a revolt. We, we read about this revolt in two passages of Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. And what I want to do is just take a couple of the passages, f- f- from a couple of verses from these passages and, and put them in front of you, starting with Isaiah chapter 14, because Isaiah is explaining to us that Lucifer was cast from heaven. And the question is, why? Why was he cast from heaven? And here, here's the answer. Isaiah answers it. You said in your heart... I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. In other words, I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to take God and push him down. I will, I will take my throne and I will put it there. I will ascend, verse 14. I will, five great I will statements here. I will ascend above the tops of clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. I will be in charge. And in these five statements, Lucifer has just laid it all out. I don't want to follow God. I want to follow me. He was the first narcissist. I will do what I want to do. And it brought destruction. It brought his destruction and the destruction of all the other angels who were following him because there were a whole bunch of other angels who thought this guy had a great idea. Don't follow God, follow, follow, follow ourselves. Perfect. Let's do that. And the story is further fulfilled and told in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel writes about the beauty and the splendor of this angel, blameless until wickedness was found in him. And then Ezekiel writes, 
He says, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. God, God made you a magnificent being, and you missed it. Lucifer changed. He, he went from following God to following himself, from serving God to serving himself. I want the glory. I want the authority. I want the power. Me, me, me. And he challenged God. And I'm just telling you, friends, not a good idea. And that selfishness and pride got him thrown out of heaven. And he has been a doomed creature ever since. Get to Revelation chapter 20, chapter 21. You're going to find out very quickly that Satan will not rule in hell. There is not a throne in hell that Satan is going to sit on. The first one who is cast into hell for punishment will be this one, the deceiver of mankind. He, brought, he has brought his ploy, he's brought his play to mankind, and it's, it's been going on since the creation of the world. If you go back to Genesis 3 and read his temptation to Adam and Eve, here's what it's all about. Don't listen to what God has to say. Follow your own path. Do your own thing. You won't die. What God's concerned about is that you're going to be like him. So, of course, he's told you don't do this because he's out for his own glory. So take it. Do it. Set yourself up. Fall. Crash. Burn. So, friends, he's the father of lies. He's out for no good thing. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He only wants to do you damage. Now here's the question, why would you listen? Because we all know it's true. When I set myself up on the throne and follow my path to do what I want to do, it will lead to pain. It will lead to destruction. It'll lead to hell. Worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom is not good. And James is telling you to flee from it. You are not God. Solomon agreed. In chapter, four, as he's pleading, chapter 14, as he's pleading with his son, he says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. You follow your path, it will lead to your destruction. And having laid out the case against worldly wisdom, James now turns his sights to godly wisdom. And, here, and here's, the, here's the promise. Godly wisdom will lead to your life being overflowing with blessings. And real, I mean, really, this is, this is the life that we all want to live. We all want our lives to be full. We all want our lives to be overflowing. We all want our lives to be joy-filled. There's nobody who honestly wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I'm just going to really mess up my life today. I'm going to screw it up. What I'm going to do is I'm, gonna, I'm just going to become a son of hell. That's where I want to go. But if you want to stay away from destruction and be blessed, it means you have to change your focus. And that's the contrast that James is laying out. Worldly wisdom is driven by a selfish ambition and a bitter envy. So what, what drives a godly mindset? And James lays it out. Chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom that comes from above is pure than peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Godly wisdom is not self-oriented. In fact, it's the exact opposite of narcissism. Godly wisdom moves from 
selfish to selfless. From self-centered to other-centered. God has called us to put down our interests and live our lives for the benefit of other people. The The bottom line, godly wisdom is all about putting God first. Me first, selfie, God first. I've died to myself. I'm choosing to live for God. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Anybody, anybody hearing this in the New Testament world, first century Rome, when you thought of the word cross, you thought of a death. You, you saw a condemned man carrying that cross, leading out to his point of execution. Jesus is saying that's what we need to do. We need to pick up our cross. Follow him. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Matthew 22, an expert of the law, came to Jesus. They were, they were tr- testing him. They were trying to trip him up. And he's asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember Jesus' response? Matthew 22, verse 37, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then Jesus went on to say in verse 40, All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, but there's really only two. Love God, love others. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the other commandments Jesus said are really definitions of what it means to love God and to love others. And to do that, to love God and to love others, means I've got to choose that I'm not going to be at the center of attention. And those characters can all be, characteristics can all be seen seen in James 3.15, verse 17. God's wisdom, the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure set apart for God. It's peace, loving, it's considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. Laying down. Picking up God. I want you to see these two mindsets. Worldly versus godly. Me first versus God first. They stand in stark contrast to one another. And James wants them to be that way. James has been talking for two and a half chapters, he's getting ready to spend the last two chapters to talking about practical Christian living and what it means to be on this path. But now he's just, he's just drawing this line and he, he, wants, he wants it to be crystal clear in every one of our minds. Following God means you have thrown away the wisdom of the world. You've thrown away this whole idea of self that I am the center of everything. I've thrown it away. I've denied that. I've died to it and I put God on the throne of my life. Why would you do that? Why would you do that's the question. And, and James is really quick, and that, that's exactly where he's moving. Because right here, this is where James talks about the fruit, the fruit that comes of, of a life that's driven by godly wisdom. Before we have destruction and every evil practice, now, now we have in James 3.18, peacemakers who sow in peace who raise a harvest of righteousness. Now pay attention to the words, because this is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring peace between you and Him. 
He wants to be out of this adversarial relationship with you. He, he wants your heart to be at peace, to be at rest. He wants you to be assured and confident that you are in his family and in his, and in his heart and in his life and, and, and that your name is written in the book. And not only that, he wants you to be a peacemaker. As you've been given peace, he wants you to be taking this peace now and giving it to others and evangelists, selling it, giving it to, to other people, sowing that peace, leading other people to hope and promise. And then this harvest of righteousness, a life, a life that is inherently selfish is a life that is empty. A life that is truly meaningful is a life that has been given away for the purpose of others. And that life lived for God's purpose brings great satisfaction, a harvest of righteousness. And that fruit can come from only one place, from God, from heaven. The fruit of destruction and every evil practice, hell. Peace, peacemakers, a harvest of righteousness, heaven. James 3.17 says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace, love, and considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. If you want to live a life of death and destruction, then follow the wisdom of the world. Set yourself up as God. Do what you want. Tell everybody to get off. But if you want to live a life of peace and blessing, then die to yourself. Die to your own desires. Put God on the throne. Follow his path. Follow his wisdom. Live for him. Do the things that he says. Do them and see if God doesn't lead you to blessing. Now, friends, right here, James is telling us to be fruit inspectors. Inspect the fruit of your life. It's a simple message. Check the outcomes. James is asking, what, what kind of life do you want to live? Pain-filled or blessed? The outcome you choose, pain or blessed, will drive the path you choose to walk. Wisdom declares that you ought to choose the path of God. There's no greater passage in the Bible that illustrates this than Psalm 1. The first psalm. And here's here's what the psalmist says. Blessed, here's that word, blessed. Blessed is the man who does not. What does he not do? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't seat in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And then the psalmist goes on. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. 
that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Listen, it's about fruit. Your life is bearing fruit. And the question is, is it bearing fruit that is in keeping with the wisdom of the world? Or fruit that is in keeping with God? Are you a tree that's flourishing? Or are you a tree that's dying? And James' word of encouragement right here in the middle of his book, take account. Let me encourage you, friends. Bow your heads. Would you do that? without inspecting the fruit of the lives of the people that are next to you, could I encourage you to inspect the fruit in your own life? Are you thriving? Or are you dying? Is God being lifted up? Or are you being lifted up? Is it about your will or his will? Wisdom says that we need to turn our faces to God. Take ourselves off the throne and wisely follow the path of obedience to God. So Lord, I, I pray that you'll help us right now, right this instant, to be crystal clear in our heads about who we want to be and how we want to live, and at the same time, Father, very clear about the path that we're on. I pray that you'll direct us, that you'll help us to see and hear and move to your place our prayer. We lift it up in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,